Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today we are talking with Rebecca Kitson, an immigration attorney with Rebecca Kitson Law in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Before we get started, will you tell us a bit about your experience in immigration? Absolutely. I've been a practicing immigration now, attorney now for a little over a decade, and I also teach immigration law as an adjunct professor at the University of New Mexico School of Law. And so uh, immigration law is both my profession as well as my passion. Great. So I'll be honest, while I have probably somewhere heard of immigration court, I have never really given it much thought. I, I think I just didn't have any reason to or know that I should. So because that's the theme of today's discussion, can you briefly explain for us why is immigration court an important topic? Why, why is it something that more people should be talking about? Well, I think that, of course, immigration um, as, a, as a topic in general strikes a chord with people all the way across the United States, um, whether or not it affects them personally or not. It's a very um, personal subject that um, affects every American. Um, I think that another thing that is sort of essentially American is the idea of justice and due process. Uh, most of us are familiar with courts and judges in one context or another, and we make assumptions about how, how those things play out. In our minds, when we think of courts, we think of a prosecutor on one side, a defendant on the other, a neutral arbitrator in the middle. And, you know, usually the assumption is, is that there is some type of an appellate process to, um, to balance those things out. Um, so we have a very important topic of immigration. And then we, I think traditionally we have this concept of courts and judicial process um, in the background. And a lot of those things do not play out in the same way that we assume that they would. And that's part of the reason that it's um, an important topic um, to discuss and to, and to understand. So before we talk more specifically just about the immigration courts, because it sounds like we all have a lot that we can learn about them, can you break down what immigration court is and maybe compared to what we would traditionally think of as court, the civil and criminal courts? Absolutely. So in the immigration system, we have federal agencies. And traditionally, the way that our government is set up, we have a separation of powers. So we have the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch. However, in the context of immigration, it is administrative law. And so it is not housed in the, in the judicial branch as, you know, as is traditional for other types of courts. In immigration law, uh, a lot of the function is housed under the Department of Homeland Security and its sub-agencies that were, of course, created after, after 9-11 and is the legacy of the Immigration and Naturalization Service that existed, the INS, prior to that. So the thing about immigration is we really have two different stances that we're looking at. If an immigrant approaches the system, they may be doing so in an affirmative way, where you would, like if you're applying for a green card or if you're applying for citizenship, you typically would do that with the Department of Homeland Security, which is a federal agency. If, you know, if you are facing removal from the United States, uh, if you have been charged with possibly being deportable, 
uh, you would be in front of an immigration court. So in, in a way, going through the agency is an affirmative process where you apply for something. And for a foreign national who's facing removal from the United States, that process would take place in front of the immigration court. However, the immigration court system is entirely housed under the Department of Justice, under the Executive Office for Immigration Review, and therefore is housed entirely under the um, the power and the direction of the Attorney General, who of course is appointed by the executive branch. So it's very structurally different um, than any other court which typically is either under the judicial branch, as we see in the federal court system, it's an entirely different branch of the government, or in the state context, it, you know, it would be under the state agencies or state judicial branch. So to recap, immigration court is actually under the Department of Homeland Security, which is under the attorney general and is completely separate from the judicial branch. Doesn't that create a conflict of interest? It can. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security is is not necessarily under the Department of Justice in the same way, but the the immigration court system is. And so what you have is, of course, the attorney general position is generally a prosecutorial position, um, which is in charge of the immigration judges. Furthermore, the, the appellate body is also under that same branch. Essentially, what you have is an immigration court system that is tied to the attorney general, which is tied to the the president and the executive branch. So essentially the executive branch holds the strings for every single immigration judge in the country and subjects it to uh, political whims or the changing administrations. There is no independence to the judges in the immigration court system. And so are the immigration judges elected by, I guess by, they aren't by a third party, are they, how do they have that position? They are appointed. So there is no election process. They are appointed through the attorney general. Therefore, again, those that are appointed and those that are chosen are also subject to the whims of the executive branch. The whole reason for having a separate judicial branch um, when our founding fathers set up our government was to ensure that a judiciary would be neutral and independent from um, you know, those that are affected by political changes in the structure of our country. So the way that the immigration court system is set up at its very core makes it subject to to the executive branch, which is very, very different. So judges are appointed. They can be hired and fired through the attorney general, which also means that, like, um, right now, you know, there have been recently we've seen um, case quotas set for immigration judges by the executive branch. So they're required to complete more than 700 cases every single year they could face being fired. Um, That is totally outside of, you know, what is necessary for them to properly um, adjudicate cases based on the law. And are they elected for a specific term or is it a life election or appointment? I'm sorry. Appointment. So it's a lifetime appointment, but again, their their ongoing ability to work is subject to the the guidelines as set out by the attorney general and the um, and the Department of Justice. Very interesting. Do all immigration cases go before an immigration court? You mentioned in cases of removal, that's deportation, that those would do all of those or every petition. Does that go before a court? What is the purpose of the court specifically within immigration? So, um, there, like I said, there are cases that go before the Department of Homeland Security when you're applying for something 
you know, affirmatively, like you're, um, you're just applying for a benefit. Uh, the benefit granting agency is the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service. However, the Department of Homeland Security also has, you know, a sub-agency of Customs and Border Protection, which is the sort of traditional border patrol that we know. There's really three different stances of a foreign national inside the U.S. There could be somebody, for example, who's on a student visa who then applies for a green card. That wouldn't ever touch the immigration court system unless there was some type of a problem. There's a possibility of somebody trying to enter the United States without permission or somebody who's trying to enter through a port of entry at a border through an airport. That would, would um, typically be handled by the, the Border Patrol who in, under some limited circumstances also has the authority to deport people. Uh, the immigration court system serves two main functions. One for people that are alleged to be deportable or removable from the United States, that there's some, there's some reason why uh, potentially this person should be legally kicked out from the country. That could be because they had a prior application denied. That could be because they were you know, caught at the border but allowed to defend themselves in front of the immigration court. It could be because somebody had their green card and committed a crime. These are all sorts of things that the immigration court can decide. So sometimes they're, they're considering appeals from cases that have been previously denied, and sometimes they're looking at reasons why, that, due to their own immigration violations or um, criminal violations that could lead to a loss of status. Earlier you mentioned when we think about courts, you think of the neutral process, you have a prosecutor, you have a defendant, and sometimes we think of a jury. Is that what immigration court looks like or... How do the proceedings happen? So the difference, it's really fascinating. So we call a, a, a foreign national who's facing deportation in the immigration court system, we call them the respondent instead of a defendant. The prosecutor is through um, Immigration and Customs in Enforcement, or ICE, which is, of course, under the Department of Homeland Security. They have a, attorneys that are considered to be the prosecutors. Um, they work for the, the same federal government as the judges do because they're, again, under the Department of Justice. So, you know, there's not the same level of neutrality there, um, especially because the attorney general being in charge of overall enforcement and the executive branch being in charge of enforcement policy um, can kind of jive with, uh, with ICE's mission to enforce the immigration laws. So you have an, a lack of neutrality in the court structure itself. As far as the respondent, there is a statutory right to counsel, but there is not a constitutional right to counsel in immigration proceedings. Uh, immigration proceedings are civil, so they're not criminal. And there's not that same right to unpaid counsel like a public defender that you would have in a criminal court. There's also no right to a jury. So the immigration judge is the sole um, arbitrator of the entire case. Um, even if it's an asylum case where somebody is, you know, it's a possible life and death type of scenario, the power over that case rests entirely with the immigration judge. Um, it also means that somebody who's facing removal from the United States, uh, the respondent, is required to either hire private counsel or locate a nonprofit organization that can represent them or represent themselves regardless of age. And so compare that scenario to us with the definition of due process. Can you explain both of those things to us compared to each other? Well, the concept of due process really arises out of our constitution. And the idea of due process, I think the fundamental thought of it is that if there are rights and obligations under our laws as established, that if someone is going to face the loss of that rights or the loss of liberty 
or um, the privilege of being in the United States, for example, in this context, that there should be some type of known and obvious procedure for that to occur. Um, and that there should be a certain neutrality and, and weight given to that. The, the thing about due process in, in courts generally is that, you know, again, there's, um, there's rules of evidence, there's, you know, there's representation, there's a whole process that we recognize as a, as a normal process in a court. In the immigration courts, however, uh, it gets muddied because of some of the conflicts that I've already described. Um, again, if somebody has lack of representation, you know, you could be five years old and facing deportation from the U.S. And whether or not there's a procedure that allows that person to really understand, you know, the child, understand what's happening to them, doesn't necessarily exist. Also, given the fact that the um, the appellate body is all within that same structure, there's really no significant oversight to immigration judges in the way that they um, enforce the law interpret the law, or even the way that things are handled within their, their own courtroom. So it's much more of kind of a free-for-all with immigration courts. We don't have rules of evidence. And so it, it is really dependent upon the personality and the leanings of that particular judge, as well as the, the court where it's located. Can immigration court decisions be appealed? I mean, it seems like knowing the structure of it, it might not do much good, but is that even an option? Immigration judges' decisions can be appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals, um, which is an appellate body that's in direct line to um, the Attorney General. So it's Attorney General, Board of Immigration Appeals, and then all of the immigration judges below. So the appeal goes directly to a board that's under the same, basically the Board of Immigration Appeals has the same boss as the judges do. Plus the Attorney General enjoys the power to be able to reach in to immigration judges' decisions or into the Board of Immigration Appeals at any point in time and make that decision for himself or herself uh, independently, can even change the course of the law. So while there is an appellate procedure, it kind of takes place within a bubble. There are some limited circumstances that you could appeal outside of the immigration court system to federal courts, um, but those are incredibly limited by statute. And so most decisions stay, stay within the bubble. Can you describe the immigration court backlog and maybe explain why it's so extreme? Well, uh, it's, I think it's easier to describe the, the backlog itself than to, to be able to fully encompass why. The backlog itself, we have 1.2 million people facing deportation in the United States right now. So that's 1.2 million people who are in the immigration court system, respondents. Um, we have 460 approximately immigration judges in about 67 immigration courts across the country. And, you know, there, that means that no matter where you are, you have thousands and thousands of cases, no matter what immigration judge you are. The reason for the backlog, it's, you know, there's many, many different reasons. Uh, I think it's one of those things that's sort of like um, compounding itself because the more people that they are, the more weight that there is on the system. Immigration judges don't have the same support as other judges do. They don't have the same number of clerks or clerical support. There's not a lot of money put into the system. And so the system itself is very beleaguered and, and overwhelmed. And there's such a limited number of forms of relief and they're very laborious to move through. So it takes a lot of time and effort. You know, it's like it's like I've heard it described that you have death penalty cases in a traffic court setting. So the court itself is very, very limited in its capacity to handle the gravity 
and the complexity of the cases before it. Well, and even just on a numbers level, I mean, 67 courts in 50 states, not even one per state. Yes. New Mexico, for example, doesn't have a court. And so immigrants would be responsible to show up at some court that might not even be in their state, regardless of their means, or if it's like a child, for example, they just need to be there on a certain date and go from there. Absolutely. And the, I mean, again, just, you know, touching back on due process, the notice requirements to, to present yourself in front of immigration courts are incredibly thin. So they just have to mail a notice of a hearing to, um, you know, the last known address uh, without any attempt to verify that the person has actually received that notice. Um, also, if the person is unable to attend their hearing, the, the judge can order the person deported even if they're not there. What is the typical wait time? to be seen at court once you hopefully receive your notice? Well, you know, it really it really varies. Um, it varies from the context all over the place. I just recently did a presentation for the American Immigration Lawyers Association, and part of the uh, discussion centered around how to actually get the notice to appear, which is the, the, the charging document and the thing that starts removal proceedings, how to get it actually lodged and moving forward with the court. Cases get stuck at different aspects, but a lot of times even to get things rolling um, may take months, if not years. The average days that somebody is in front of the immigration court in proceedings is 769 days. Oh my goodness. (laughs) That was way beyond what I was imagining in my mind. (laughs) It's a mind-blowing number for sure. And I mean, the longer that somebody's in the proceedings, of course, the greater uh, the greater the administrative weight. And this is the part of the compounding problem. You know, the longer that somebody's there, the more that their facts and circumstances change, you know, the more that the court has to to, you know, dock it. I mean, just the, the administration alone is is, a, is an extraordinary burden. And I was just reading somewhere that as long as it's been counted that the number of immigration judges choosing to leave immigration court is the highest it's ever been. Is that correct? I have also heard that. Um, There's uh, the National Association of Immigration Judges, um, which of course is basically like the union for the immigration judges, has been incredibly vocal as of late. They have a lot of information on their website about how difficult it has been for them, the strain on them, and they're really calling for an independent judiciary that would allow them to function as judges instead of basically as agents of the Department of Justice and the Attorney General. Are there any other major misconceptions that you'd want to address? I think that the, you know, the assumption a lot of times is if you're in if you're in immigration court that um, that you've done something wrong or that you should be removed from the United States. And the truth is, is that there are a lot of different reasons why people end up in front of the immigration court. And a lot of times the, the types of things that they're seeking, either a green card or asylum or other positive forms of relief, are allowed by our laws and are things that that need to be processed in order for us to continue to be a society that respects and welcomes immigrants. Thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. And really just, I think, sounds like we're just barely tapping the surface of this issue. I know I learned a lot and I hope others did. Where can people learn more about you and your practice? My website, rkidsinlaw.com. We also have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter. We're on social media. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. 
If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration.